everyone, am I on? You'll have to excuse me, I've woken up with a bit of blocked ears this morning, so I can't quite hear myself. So if I seem to be shouting at times, that's it. That's the reason why. Um, We are in week four of our Worlds Collide series, which is a series that that basically focuses on the moments where heaven and earth kind of intertwine and where they have a a major heavenly encounter here on earth. And we've been following the story of Moses throughout the book of Exodus as part of the series. And so just to give you a quick, very brief overview, and the last time I said very brief, I think I preached for 45 minutes, so we won't try to do that today. Um, But to give you a brief overview, overview, Moses was born as as part of the Hebrew nation who were living in slavery in in Egypt at the time after Jacob. It was about 430 years after um, Jacob and the people had been led into Egypt. And Moses was put into a basket where he was, you know, the story of Moses in the bulrushes, and he was adopted into Pharaoh's family. So he was Israeli by birth. He was an Israelite by birth, but he was um, adopted and raised as, a, as an Egyptian prince. And when he was about 40 years old, we, we went through the story of how he had to flee from Egypt into Midian. And there in Midian, he got married, um, but he, was, he, he still declared himself a foreigner in that land. And he then married, so he married a lady. He had a major encounter with God at the mountain of God, which we'll talk about again today. And God said to him, I want you to go and free my people. And so Moses, after much debating, eventually goes back to Egypt. And we went through, um, a couple of weeks ago, we went through all the plagues that the, that the, the, the Israelite people and the Egyptians witnessed and were part of as God was leading his people out of Egypt. And then last week, Colin was speaking about the crossing of the Red Sea and how the people of Israel had now come out of Egypt and they were being pursued by the Egyptians and you had them, they, they kind of reached this, this part where they were in a valley so they had nowhere to turn with the sea in front of him, them, the Egyptians behind them and they were once again fearful. And these people were witnessing, not just hearing about, they were witnessing the presence of God with them. And we learned uh, last week that they had a pillar of cloud, a, a pillar of clower, you know what I mean, a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud that went before them. And when the Egyptians were closing in, they had the same pillar then move behind them and create a space between themselves and the Egyptians. And that pillar was the very presence of God. And then we get to what is probably one of my favorite verses of Exodus. So keep in mind, these are a people that have now multiple times witnessed the hand of God moving in their lives, like in mighty ways. How many of us go, oh, I'd love to see God and I'd love to see him move. And then we, we get those encounters and then we react sometimes like the, like the Israelites react. Because in Exodus 14 verse 31, this is what it says. And when the Israelites, so this is just after the the Egyptian armies have now been covered by the Red Sea. When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. That's after they've seen the Egyptian army get swallowed up by the waters. My question is, why not before? Why not with the very first wonder that God showed them or the very first plague that they encountered? But only after they've seen the Egyptian army get covered by the Red Sea do the people go, oh, okay, now we'll trust God and okay, now we'll trust Moses, his servant. And then what happens in the book of Exodus, which is what we're going to go through today. um, So the first 14 chapters of Exodus 
cover Moses' early life. It covers the plagues, and it covers the people leaving, leaving Egypt. But the next 26 chapters of the book, and in fact, not just the next 26 chapters of Exodus, but the next three books in the Bible after that, so that is Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all cover the people's journey that happens in the world of the Israelite history. So we would think the major event for the Israelites would be all the plagues and the wonders that God performed in Egypt, but in actual fact, the major event for them is still coming. And we read about it from chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. So I'm going to go through this this morning. It's going to be a little bit of a history lesson, and I've got a map that, if the guys don't mind showing it, we'll refer back to a number of times. I even got a little laser pointer. I don't know if that's going to help us. Is it going to work? No, that's the wrong button. There we go. Look at us. Okay. So over here, we have the Nile Delta. I feel like I'm a lecturer in a university. So over here, we have the Nile Delta. And I just want to remind you briefly, I don't know how that light came on. Um, I want to remind you briefly that the Nile Delta for the Egyptians was seen as their most sacred holy land. And if you remember correctly, you'll remember that I said in the second week that the Egyptians believed that if they died outside of the Nile Delta, so if their bodies were buried anywhere outside of the Nile Delta, they, were, they weren't able to enter eternity. They weren't able to enter the, their, their promised uh, eternity, their field of reeds, all right? That entire Egyptian army died outside of that Nile Delta, which means, according to their beliefs and religions, when they were covered by the Red Sea, they weren't just condemned to hell, they were condemned to non-existence, according to their beliefs. Now, think about what God has done in covering our sins. And how when he covers them over, they are non-existent to him anymore. But that's not the point this morning. Can we put the map back up there if that's okay? So we have chapter 15. We have them coming out of the Nile Delta here. They're coming across the Red Sea. And they enter what's called the Wilderness of Shur, which is this area around here. And as they're coming out, Miriam and Moses start singing a song about praising God and worshiping him and saying all the wonderful things that he's done for them and how the armies have been covered. And there's this atmosphere of praise and worship to God. And then we get to verse 22, which is three days into their journey out of Egypt. And we are told that the people start to grumble. The same people that have seen the presence of God, that have just been worshiping him in the desert, these same people, three days after being rescued, start to grumble. And the reason for their discontent was that there was not, no water where they were. And they were going, well, you've led us into the desert to die of thirst. So they start to grumble to Moses. Three days after they've seen the very hand of God and they've worshiped him. And then they find a pool of water at a place called Mara, which is sort of down here on the map, once they've been journeying. So Mara is around there. And they, um, they find water there, but the water is too bitter for them to drink. And so God shows Moses some wood that he must put into the water, and miraculously the water then becomes consumable, and the people can then have fresh water to drink after they had now grumbled. And in verse 25 of chapter 15, it tells us that this was a period where God was about to put the people to the test. And um, this is exactly what the next 40 years of the Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all of those books, the next 40 years was a time of testing and trial for the people. Um, and we won't have time to go through 
all of that journey, but I'd like to go through some of the major highlights, but I would encourage you to read the story yourself at home and to really get into it because there's just so much meat and so much to learn from the story of the exodus of the Israelites. So after the the place of Mara, the people keep journeying and they end up just down here, just below Mara, there's a little place called Elam. And Elam means place of the strong trees. And in Elam, they found 12 fresh springs of water, and they found what's, what the Bible describes as 70 tall palm trees. So in other words, they had found um, like an oasis in the desert, a place for them to rest. But please note, this was not their final destination. How many of us, after leaving Egypt and finding this beautiful valley where we've got fresh food and water, we might go, okay, this is it. This is where I'm going to camp out. But God said, no, this isn't the place where I've... Where I've, I've um, Uh, what's the word I'm looking for, where I've laid out, where I've prophesied for my people to go. This isn't the place where I've planned for them to land. And so they keep moving on from Elam after spending a time of rest there. And then we get to chapter 16. And from Elam, the people then set out into what is called the desert of sin. And I was like, oh, sin, there's a nice like moral lesson. And it turns out there's no relation between the name of the desert and the moral decline that we call sin. All right, it was just a Hebrew word. Um, if you can find a relation, please let me know. But I Googled, I Googled this like tremendously. I couldn't find it. Um, but they, they got into a place called the Desert of Sin, which is sort of around this region here. It's called the Wilderness of Sin. You'll see the word wilderness and desert are used interchangeably in Scripture, all right? And so you've got the Wilderness of Sin here, which is between Elam and Mount Sinai, which is where we're ultimately heading towards. And once again, they are now one month and 15 days into their journey out of Egypt. So they've come out, they've grumbled, they've gotten water, they've traveled, they've found a place to rest, they've traveled again. And one month and 15 days after they've now been, been freed from the Egyptian captors, they start to grumble again. And in Exodus 16 verse 3, it tells us the following words. It says, the Israelites said to them, them being Aaron and Moses, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Like how ungrateful. What? Like if only we died by the Lord's hand. You brought us here. You you want to starve us. And so these, we, we we read the story or I read the story at least going, Man, what's wrong with these people? They saw the hand of God. They've said we will trust God. And now, not only have they grumbled once before about water, now they've grumbled about food. Well, we're going to starve. We've got no food. And so God speaks to Moses and Aaron, and he tells them that he is going to rain down bread from heaven. And then Aaron comes to tell this to the people. And the Bible tells us that while Aaron is relaying the message to the people, They can see the glory of God behind him over the desert like a cloud. They can actually physically, so they're hearing God's word from Aaron's mouth, but they are seeing God's presence with them always, and yet they still grumble. And that very same night, the Bible tells us that at about twilight, a whole flock of quail came and rested in the camp, and quail being those little birds I'm sure they taste like chicken because everything tastes like chicken, right? But they had fresh meat because the quail came and rested in the camps and they could catch the quail. And in the morning, there was dew all over the ground. And when the dew dried up, they were left with frost-like flakes, 
which the Bible says resembled coriander seeds. And we've got a photo there, the best we could find of coriander seeds. But they were left with these frost-like flakes. And the people called that manna. And do you know what manna translates to in English from the Hebrew language? It literally translates to, what is this? That's what manna means. We speak about manna from heaven. They're like, what is it? But they took it. And we're told that manna tasted like honeyed wafers if you ate it raw. I mean, it's literally food from heaven. And it rains down and they collect it and it tastes like honeyed wafers. Or they would pound it up and then they'd bake it into cakes so they would have their bread. And God was very specific in his instructions to Moses and Aaron. He said to them exactly how to collect the manna each day and how much of it they each had to collect. And um, they had to each collect an omer of manna. So they, the, the Bible tells us that Moses specifically said to the people, you are only to collect enough for each day. And God promised them that they would have that manna and it carried through for the entire time that they were in the wilderness, which at this point we learn was 40 years. So for 40 years after coming out of Egypt, these people journeyed and traveled in the wilderness. And for 40 years, God fed them with heavenly food from from a miraculous source. And those people that didn't trust God, that tried to collect enough manna to last them a few days, would be very disappointed when they woke up in the morning because the following day, any manna that was left over from the day before would be full of maggots and would be rotten. Except when it was the Sabbath because God had commanded his people to rest on the Sabbath. And so the day before his holy day, they were allowed to collect a double portion. And in the morning, that manna was still perfect and was right for them for the Sabbath. The Bible also tells us that some people collected a lot and some people collected a little, but when they weighed what they'd collected, it was exactly what the Lord had commanded, which was an omer, which is about 1.4 kilograms per person. God was miraculously providing for his people, the same people that he led out that only trusted him when it suited them because they're like, oh, we saw this, we saw this, we saw this, we saw, oh, now we'll trust you. The same people that grumbled, 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 and yet he fed them. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus prays and he says, give us this day our daily bread. This is where that that idea originates from. Because God would feed his people daily with food from heaven. It's interesting to note And I'd like to just put this in here, that the number 40, which we're going to come across quite a few times throughout Exodus, is the number of testing and the number of trials, and it's also the number of triumph in Scripture. So when you find the number 40 being repeated over and over, like the 40 years in the wilderness, or Moses had 40 years in Midian, he had 40 years in Egypt, it was a time of testing, a time of trials, a time where God was readying his people for something bigger and something greater. And then we move on to chapter 17. So the people have been in the desert of sin. We have that map back up there. So they've been in the desert of sin over here. Wait, let me get the right button. Nope, wrong button. Okay, so the desert of sin. And now they start moving down here, which is the area of Mount Sinai. All right. And so they come to a place called Rephidium. And Rephidium means place of rest. All right, or it, or it literally translates to bed. 
And this was an area that the people could go to that God wanted them to now camp in for a while. But we learn that in Rephidium, there was no water. So what do you think the people do at this point? They, they pray. They trust God. They go, no, of course, the God who's provided us and miraculously led us out of Egypt. No, of course, he's not going to let us um, dehydrate in the desert. No, the people go to their go-to at this point, and they quarrel with Moses. So in Exodus 17, verses 2 to 3, it says, They quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And at this point, I don't know, Moses must have just kind of hung his head and gone, Lord, do these people not get it? Do they not see it at this point? But again, God is patient with his people. And he instructs Moses to take the same rod that he had used to strike the Nile River and turn it into blood. Take that same rod that he had used to part the Red Sea and to strike a rock in an area called Horeb. And today you can actually go, listen, they're not, I suppose, 100% sure that this is the right rock and whatnot, but it's an interesting historical journey to take anyway. But there is actually a rock called the Rock of Horeb that you can go to. And the Rock of Horeb is a split rock that shows signs of water erosion in a desert where there is no water. And Moses strikes this rock. The rock splits in two and gallons and gallons, kiloliters of water flow out of the rock and all of the Israelites and all of their livestock have plenty of water to replenish them. Again, God miraculously providing for his people. Then we read, so that's chapter 17, that's the first seven verses. Then we read verse 8, that the Israelites are attacked by an army called the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were a nomadic tribe. So this, this was a tribe who would move around the desert to different areas. And they were enemies of the Israelites. And when they encountered them, they attacked them. And this is also the first time that we meet a very important biblical character who we're going to keep seeing throughout Scripture by the name of Joshua. And Joshua leads the Israelite men in a battle against the Amalekites. And Moses and Aaron and another Israelite elder by the name of Hur, H-U-R, go up on top of a hill to watch the battle. And Moses realizes that every time he raises his hands up in prayer to God, that the Israelites gain ground and they start to win the battle. But when he lowers his hands, the Amalekites start to take victory and they start to win. And so Moses realizes that he's got to keep his hands raised the whole time. And that's what he does. But of course, to do that takes a great deal of effort. And eventually, Moses' arms are so tired from having his hands raised up that he can't do it by himself anymore. And so Aaron and Hur put a rock underneath Moses so he can sit. And then Aaron and Hur hold his arms up so that the people can win the battle. And we learn that at sunset, so just as the sun was setting at the end of that day, the Israelites, through the leadership of Joshua, finally had the ultimate victory over the Amalekites. And that was because of Moses' obedience and keeping his hands raised to God, keeping interceding for the people on their behalf. Then in chapter 18, Moses receives a visit from his father-in-law. Now, you'll remember that Moses, sorry, can we do the map again? We'll just keep going back to the map if that's okay. So Moses' father-in-law was a Midianite, and he sort of lived, so there's Midian, 
but this part here was also a territory of Midian. So his father-in-law lived somewhere around here. And this was the area where Moses had gone to when he first fled Egypt. And his father-in-law's name was Jethro. And so at some point in the story, though we're not quite sure where, Moses had sent his, his wife, Zipporah, and his two sons. He had sent them to go live back with his father-in-law, possibly while he was performing God's work and bringing the people out of Egypt. And um, at this point, Jethro comes to visit. So here's Raphidium over here. Jethro comes to visit Moses. And Moses and Jethro have a catch-up, and he tells Jethro all about the things that God has done for them in Egypt. And while Jethro is visiting, he sees that Moses is, um, on a daily basis, Moses has lots of the Israelite people coming to him, asking him to solve disputes for them. And Moses stands there from morning to night, basically judging and helping people and solving things and, you know, taking on all the problems of the world for the Israelites. Moses takes them on himself, and he, um, he's obviously looking exhausted. And Jethro is the one who eventually says to him, but Moses, why are you doing it this way? Why don't you delegate? And he says to him, why don't you take for yourself men from your tribes, from the different tribes of Israel, put some of them over 100 people, some over 50, some over 10, and use them to perform these judgment tasks so that you are freed up to do the Lord's work. And that's exactly what Moses does. Now, I feel it's important to add that in there, although that's not going to be the main point of today, not at all, but I didn't want to skip that part out because I feel that chapter 18 and that part in chapter 17 with the Amalekites and Moses' hands being raised are so important for the people that are leaders among us to realize and to accept the support of those that are there to lift you up when you are tired and also to delegate and to, to hand out that responsibility. It's not necessarily saying, I can't do it. It's a case of going, I'm going to be focused on what God has called me to do. And it's so important in today's society to understand that what God was doing here for the Israelites was giving them a picture of governance and leadership. This is how he wants the leadership to be. This is how he expects his people to be governed. So that's chapter 18. And chapter 19, which is now exactly three months since they have left Egypt. This is the first day of the third month. The people come to this part of the land here. Sorry, can we pull that map up again? They come down here, which is Mount Sinai, which is called the mountain of God. And the Bible tells us that the people camped in front of the mountain, not a mountain, the mountain. That is the same mountain where Moses first encountered God in the burning bush. That's the same mountain where Moses met up again with Aaron and they commissioned each other to now go out to the, to the Israelite people and to tell them that God was going to set them free and to bring them out of slavery. This was a holy place. This was the holy place so far as the story is concerned. And God tells Moses to come up to him. And in Exodus 19, verse 3 to 6, we read the following. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And Moses then goes and he relays this message to the Israelites. And this is what the people respond. And I want you to to remember this. The people all responded. This is verse uh, verse 8. We will do everything the Lord has said. And then Moses brings their response back to God. And then from verse 9 to 15 of that chapter, we read how the people are called to consecrate themselves because now something big is about to happen. There's about to be a major encounter with God, and they are to consecrate themselves. And which, this is what they do for about three days. They then have rituals and cleansing, and there's certain things that they do. And then in chapter 20, God comes to the people. He comes down in a cloud of, like a, a big cloud. And... Um, This is the point where the Lord gives Moses his Ten Commandments, which is something we still teach in Sunday school today. These are the ten major principles on which God wanted the Israelite people to build their government, to build their faith, and to operate as a society. And they're still very much applicable for us today as they were back then. But you'll remember that these people up until this point knew only the Egyptian way of life. They had been raised as Egyptians. They knew the Egyptian customs. They worshipped the Egyptian gods. And so what God is doing here is, is kind of further freeing them. They've been physically freed out of Egypt, but now he's starting on their spiritual freedom in this time of trial and testing. And he says to them, and I'll go through the Ten Commandments very quickly, although you, you'll need to go and read them for yourself. The first one he says is, you shall have what? No other gods before me. Why was this so applicable for the people? Because they had been raised in a culture that had a pantheon of over 2,000 gods. For them, polytheism, the worship of multiple gods, wasn't just like an accepted thing. It was the done thing in their society. Like if you wanted grain, you worship this God. If you wanted water, you worshiped that God. And God was saying, no, there will be no other gods before me. The second commandment he says to them is that they shall not make any image. They shall not liken or make, create an idol and bow down. And he says, you shall not create an image of anything from the heavens, on the earth, or below the waters. You shall not bow down to any image. And you might think, well, isn't that the same as not having any other God? But actually, he's telling them not to make an image of him. If you read later on in Deuteronomy, he explains, he says, what shall you liken me to? There's nothing. So the people might have been tempted to kind of follow God with their Egyptian cultures and to try to make an image of God that they could worship. And God was saying, you cannot do that. In verse 22, he tells them not to build idols. He tells his people to build altars. He says, you must worship me at altars, not create idols that you can worship me with. And then he carries on. You shall not misuse the name of your Lord. Remember the Sabbath day is holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. And those are the ten major principles upon which he builds his, his people, upon which they must build their, their society and their faith. Then from chapters 22 to 24... There's a whole lot more commandments given. In fact, in the Mosaic law, there are 613 commandments, not just 10. 
The 10 major ones are the ones that kind of, they call it like, sort of like the constitution. They have like the foundation for everything. But there's 613 laws. And so in the book of Exodus, from chapter 22 to 24, God gives Moses a whole lot of societal laws, laws of property, laws of interpersonal relationships, how to solve disputes. It's a whole lot. You can go and read it on your own. It's, it's very, very interesting. And then in chapter 23, God makes a covenant with his people. And he says to them, I am going to lead you to a promised land. And he says, my angel, and he calls it my terror at times, will go before you. And I will drive out anyone who's in that promised land. And I will drive them out bit by bit by bit. Not all at once. And you know why? Because he said, because if I drive them all out at once, by the time you get there, the wild animals will just be roaming around the land and you won't be able to tame it. So there's a plan. I'll drive them out bit by bit by bit. But I'm calling you to a promised land and I will go before you. And then, Exodus 24, Moses goes and relays these words to the people. And again, the people respond. Exodus 24 verse 3, they say, everything the Lord has said we will do. Exodus 24 verse 7, Moses takes the book of the covenant and he reads it to the people and they say, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Remember those words. And then in verse 12 of chapter 24, Moses is called up to the mountain. God says, I want you to come up to the mountain. And he takes Joshua with him. And that's the point where he then goes and God, with the very finger of God, actually writes the Ten Commandments onto two tablets of stone. And then Moses is up on that mountain and we read that he leaves the people in the care of Aaron and Hur. So while Moses and and Joshua are away from the camp, Aaron is basically in charge. And then the Bible tells us that Moses is up that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God. And from chapters 25 to 31, it's a whole discussion between Moses and God. And and God's telling uh, Moses basically more instructions and how to build his tabernacle. And there's, again, a whole lot of stuff that you can go and read for yourselves. But what I want to skip to is chapter 32. I've got to tell you, every time those birds fly past, I think of that scripture of the, the spirit of God descending like a dove. Like, I wonder if that's what's happening here. Okay, maybe it wasn't a dove. Maybe it was a starling. Um, And I don't mean that disrespectfully. Please don't stone me afterwards. Okay. Chapter 32. Moses is now up the mountain. He's up there 40 days and 40 nights. The people that God has led out of Egypt miraculously. The people that God has fed with manna from heaven. The people that God has split a rock open for in a waterless land and has watered them and their flocks. The people that... A few verses before went, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. Exodus 32 verse 1, they come to Aaron and they say, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. What an impatient people. Moses is gone for 40 days. And they start to lose their commitment altogether. They go, oh, well, we, we don't know where Moses is. Aaron, come, you, you make us some gods. You make us gods that we can now worship. We need, we need gods to worship to lead us further on this journey. And Aaron, 
You would think being Aaron, Moses' right-hand man, the guy who has seen God work and felt God work through him, you would think Aaron would take a stand and go, no, like pull yourselves towards yourselves, guys, let's, let's keep the faith. No, the Bible tells us that Aaron complies. And he says to them, fine, give me all your gold, your earrings. And he melts them in a fire. And the Bible tells us that Aaron forms a calf, forms a golden calf out of the melted gold. And then he builds something, um, he builds an altar and puts the golden calf on the altar and the people start to worship this calf. Now there is actually, there are a few places that could possibly be, I've got, I think, do we have a photo of it? Oh no, that's, that isn't it, it's fine. The, the original one I had, there's actually still a place you can go where the calf is no more, but the stones are still there and they've even got hieroglyphs of a calf on them. And it's most possibly the site of the worship of the golden calf. It's the altar of the golden calf. But you would think that these people might just have a little bit more faith than this. People that had seen the hand of God move. And while Moses is up the mountain, God says to him, you better get back down there. Like the people are up to something. And in verse 10, God actually says to him, you know what, Moses? Just say the word. I will destroy the people. God says to Moses, I'll I'll wipe them off the face of the earth, and then I will use you to build my nation. And Moses intercedes for the people. That was Moses' time of testing. Because how easy to go, yes, God, we've given these people enough chances, just wipe them out. But Moses intercedes for the people. And then he goes back down the mountain, and... um, He's got the the tablets of of stone in his hand with the Ten Commandments on. And he can hear as he's coming down, he still says to Joshua, he says, the people are making a noise. But the noise they're making isn't a sound of of like defeat. It's not like like mourning. He's like, and it's not a sound of victory like they've just won a battle. He's like, it's a sound of a party. Something's happening down there. And he gets down and lo and behold, here's the Israelite nations led by his brother, worshiping a golden calf when the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment is you shall not make images and liken them to me. And Moses breaks the stone tablets. He throws them down and he breaks them. And he says to Aaron, what did the people do to you? What did they do to you that you've you've chosen to do this? And Aaron doesn't quite know what to do. So he tells Moses, we threw the gold into the fire and this calf just appeared. Like, at least the people were kind of going, well, we're not worshiping God anymore. Aaron was in this place where I think so many of us find ourselves like, how do we please both? How do we please both? I'm just going to, I'm just going to kind of live with one foot here and one foot there. Personally, I feel like Aaron's the most guilty one out of all of this because he just couldn't decide. He thought, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll make an image of God for the people to worship. And that's what he felt. And you read in scripture, that's what he felt he was doing. But really, what he was doing is not choosing a side. And then we get to one of the most difficult portions of Scripture to read. Because now comes the punishment after the crime. And Moses calls the Levites to him. And the Levites were the tribe, of, of Israel, the tribe within the Israelites who were the priesthood. And he tells them to strap on their swords and to go out and to kill their brothers, their friends, and their neighbors. And we read that 3,000 people die that day because of the crimes of Israel. They are put to death because of the worship of the golden calf. And I want you to remember that because that's an important number for what we're going to speak about next week. 
And then Moses attempts to make an atonement with the Lord on the people's behalf. And God is now, I think, a little bit, a little bit angry. And he says, no, he's removing his presence from the people. And after much back and forth, eventually Moses goes back up with two new tablets of stone and God writes the commandments again. And we learn from there that they then construct the tabernacle that God had commanded. And I want to end off with um, chapter 40 of Exodus, which says this. These are the final words of the book of Exodus. Chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud that had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they would not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in all the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. The book of Exodus ends on a very strong note. Because despite the people's impatience, despite their immaturity, despite their grumbling, despite their wrongs and the sins that they commit, we read that the presence of God does not leave them. It never does. And then their story continues on into the next few books. But what I'd like to focus on this morning, and I know that time is running out, is we read the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. And I don't know, if you're like me, you read it and you go, these people are nuts. Like, you've seen the presence of God. How do you turn your back on him? You've seen him work. How can you doubt that he's going to come through for you? And yet, how often do we do the same? How many of us are right now, and you don't have to put your hands up, how many of us are right now in a place that we would call the wilderness? It's not quite the slavery we came out of, but it's not quite yet our promised land. And we don't like the wilderness. And in the wilderness, you will find places like Rephidium and Elam, places of rest, places where things go well. But those are not the ultimate places where we're supposed to end up. And in the wilderness, you will find rough places. You'll find places where you're hungry and you're thirsty, and you're doubting, and you're wondering. But I believe if we remember the promises of God, we can avoid making the same mistakes the Israelites made. We never be as fickle a people as our ancestors were. And they are our ancestors. We are still part of their story. In Deuteronomy verse eight, uh, in chapter 8, I want to read this. I don't have it up on the screen. I want to read this to you. It's a little bit of a lengthy portion, but um, it gives us a good insight as to just what this wilderness meant for the people, and then we'll end it off there. And it's a reminder for us today when we find ourselves in those desert places. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised an oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years 
to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And I think sometimes we get so caught up with the word discipline meaning punishment. Discipline means to make a disciple of. We want to be disciples of God. We need to fall in line with his discipline, especially in the wilderness places. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions, he brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. When we reach the promised land, may we remember the wilderness and the lessons that we learn there. Can we pray together? I'm actually going to ask if you'll stand with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, may we not be a fickle people, Lord. May we not be a people that is easily turned from you. Father, may we not be people that the first bump in the road sends us longing back for Egypt, Father. But Lord, may we remember you in all that we do. May we keep our eyes focused on you. For those of us this morning, Lord, that are encountering a wilderness moment, Lord, those of us that are on a journey to a place and we're not 100% sure where that journey is going to end up, Father, may we remember that it is you that goes before us. It is you who has designed our path. Father, may you protect us and hedge us in on every side. Lord, and may we keep our eyes focused 100% on you turning neither to the left nor the right, Lord, not looking back to where we've come from, Father, but looking forward to you, the giver of our life. Lord, when we reach our destination, Father, may we not become proud, 
May we not become, become ignorant of the fact that you are the one that have led us there. Lord, may we remember you in all we do. May we honor you in all that we do. And Father, may our lives bring you the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.